Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. Today, I had the opportunity and the privilege of speaking with Dr. Ken Milne from the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Uh, it was the first time we went international, which was kind of cool. Um, Ken is a physician and uh, has been working for about 30 years. His podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, is one of the best uh, podcast that you can listen to when it comes to listening to and interpreting data. It was really a great conversation we had with him. So without further ado, here's Ken. Right on the line with me, I have Dr. Ken Milne. He is the chief of staff of the South Huron Hospital Association in Exeter, Ontario. He is the first international guest we've had on the show. Um, he's also the host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, a professor at Western University, and he's been doing medicine and research for over 30 years. So Ken, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, it's my pleasure, and boy, I'm sounding old now. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's experience. We'll go with experience for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I can. I refer to it as maturity. Mature. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fifth year graduate with 25 years experience, right? Yeah, I'm a PGY 27 or something now. <laughs> it's something just, like that. To start throwing numbers out there. So the reason I want to talk to you today, Ken, is, uh, and we mentioned this off the air, but we we talk a lot about reading studies on the show. And we thought, you know, what better way than to talk to these skeptic guy, the head of the skeptics guide to talk about a good way to read studies. So the first thing I want to ask you is for those of you who have not been initiated to the skeptics guide, what is the catchphrase you guys have for your show uh, when it comes to reading studies and data? Remember to be skeptical of anything you hear, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Which is one of my favorite things, because even if I tell you or if you tell me that this is what works, the important thing is to do a critical analysis on your own, right? Always go back to the primary literature. Don't believe anything, anything somebody tells you. I, I mean, it, it, it's a really good basis for starting any kind of idea of whether I should do something or not, is to go, hmm. I don't know about that. Let me look into it more. Yeah, I think that's great. So if someone is just starting to read a study, and, and as I said, we don't get a lot of training in this, in going through EMT or medic school, what are the top three things you would look for in what you would define as a good study? A good study. Oh, and, <laughs> you know, there's so few of them out there. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I always teeter between, you know, skepticism, which I think is optimistic, and I'm willing to change my mind when prevent presented with good information, uh, high quality, clinically relevant information that I should change my mind. But I know that the vast majority isn't good. And so I'm teetering on nihilism. So I'm going to try to avoid that and be the glasses half full skeptic. But how do I identify a good study? Well, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? Because how do you, how do you get it down to like three things? I'm going to have to go with five things because sure. that's my favorite number. Sorry. The, the more the merrier. I can count to it on one hand. So, uh, first of all, when you're, when you're looking at a study, I, I skip the abstract. Okay. No, don't, don't read the abstract. I go straight to the method section and I know that's a little nerdy, but I'm a lot nerdy. I go straight to the method section. I go, okay, what the heck did they do? Like, what is, what did they set up to do? Cause I don't want to read their like, you know, prefabricated, uh, sort of here's what we did. I want to see what they actually did in their methods. And I go to the method section. I go, okay, so this was their primary objective. This is what they set up to do. And then you go through some key things like, you know, is it a blinded trial? Did they randomize the patients? Did they conceal the randomization? All of those things that could introduce bias into the study. And then what kind of uh, statistical analysis were, doing, were they doing? And I know I could really lose 
the vast majority of your audience if I start talking P values. <laughs> so I'm not going to pee all over your podcast, man. Oh, that's but, good. All right. <laughs> oh, a little alliteration there. But, you know, like, you, you know, like what were they going to do? And, and you know, I'm not a, a statistician, but I know enough now to go in and say, hmm, were they using an absolute number or a relative number? And if they're using absolute numbers, it's good, right? We want to know exactly how much something changed. You know, a relative number doesn't mean much to me, you know, because they could say, oh, yeah, there was a 50% drop in mortality. And you're like, ho, 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 nicely done, boys. But it turns out it went from 2% down to, to 1%. 1%. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, okay, 1% drop. Now I'm, you know, now I'm not. So I want to see absolute numbers in there in that method section. And so once I've read the methods and then I go to the key, I go to the results and I go, what's their key result? And then I read their conclusions. And did their methods support the results that they got? And those uh, do those results support the conclusions or are they going a bit beyond their conclusions? And those are the sort of, I guess, the three big things. But, but I said that I wanted five. Because um, if you're saying, what do I look for in a good study? There's easy stuff to say, what do I look for in a bad study? And so there's some red flags there. If, if, um, if it was a pharmaceutical funded study, uh, that multiple authors were employed by that company and they had control of the data and the research and the publication and all that stuff. My radar is going, do you have sound effects on your podcast? <laughs> danger, Will Robinson. Danger, well, right, that's Will that's Robinson. a big red alert, right? If someone's getting oh. money for their own study, you can't, you can't do that. You know, like, what, what are you going to do? Produce a study that says our product sucks? Right, exactly. What are, the, what are the chances of you still being employed by that? You know, like, so, you know, like, so that's one big red flag. And then, you know, one of the other things I look at is, did they really focus on the patient? You know, at the end of the day, you, me, and everybody else involved in critical care, whether it's pre-hospital, in the hospital, upstairs in the ICU, or after the patient's been discharged, what we care about is patient-oriented outcomes. And if they're looking at surrogate markers, like, oh, your blood pressure was, you know, two millimeters of mercury better, I don't care. Like, I don't right. care. I Like, the patient doesn't care. I want to know alive or dead, and preferably alive playing the piano, like in good neurologic function, right. not sort of mostly dead. So when you're looking at, and you mentioned that you don't look at the abstract, which is something I wanted to touch on as well, because in a lot of times when we have people in our profession, um, getting access to something more than the abstract is somewhat difficult. So if you're looking at an abstract and that's the only availability you have, you're not available, you know, you can't get through um, you know, behind the paywall on PubMed or Science Direct. Is there any good way that you think to get good information from the abstract or is it something that you just try and find the whole paper? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard because that abstract, I mean, sometimes, um, they leave out, you know, some of the major findings or the primary outcome isn't highlighted in the abstract because they bury it because it was, let's say it's uh, a paper looking at preventing something but it had a big adverse event and that adverse event was bleeding and that overwhelmed the research. Right. And yet they only present the positive findings in the abstract. I mean, they're selling it, baby. You know, it's publish or perish. <laughs> and we live in that reality. And I understand that reality and I wish we didn't have that reality. So I, I try really hard not to look at the abstract. And but hey, I've got an idea for you, Ed. Yep. Here's the deal. My name's Ken Milne. 
my email is thesgem at gmail.com. You want a paper, email me, T. Email me it, and I'll try to get it for you, okay? And that's, I, I really do appreciate it, and I, I hope all the listeners will take advantage of that. And that's something that I found um, just personally is something that if you find a paper that you find is interesting and you can only have access to the abstract, you can't get behind the paywall, um, you're not affiliated with an institution that does that, or you're working for a private that doesn't have a kind of access, a lot of times if you reach out to the author of the paper, they'll be willing to you know, give you information on the data set or they'll be willing just to give you the paper. And, and there's there's research that says the average number of people that read your paper is seven and one of them really? is your mother. So, so they would love it if you read their paper. <laughs> just send the emails out, people. So it, it, throughout the year, we've been talking, there's been a couple significant studies that come out for EMS. Specifically, we have the, um, the Airways 3 trial or Airways 2 trial and the, the paramedic study that came out. Um, Lots of paper was put out on this. Lots of uh, lots of podcasts talked about it. And one of the things that was kind of I thought was missed was the question of should one particular study change your practice. So talk to me about the excitement that people have when they see one either good or bad study or something that kind of fits their bias versus changing your practice toward the I guess the agreement of the data. Yeah. So there has to be a fairly big, significant paper to really change your practice because it takes place in a context, right? right? And we have to always, whenever I see a publication, and this is what we do on our podcast, when we see a publication, after we've gone through the critical appraisal and talk nerdy and stuff like that, we need to reflect back and say, how does this fit in with the existing literature. It may be an outlier. It may be a one-off. It may be something with regards to their population or their methods or something um, has made it different. And so we really need replication in research. And if you get study after study after studies uh, providing the same signal, then I think you're talking about changing your practice. But we have a long history of talking about knowledge translation and taking over 10 years for high-quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside. So I think it takes too long, but I also think we don't want to jump too soon. So there has to be a Goldilocks zone of when do you change your practice? And everybody will have a different threshold. Some are early adopters and they just woohoo, jump <laughs> off the cliff and say, let's put everybody on ice. Let's, you know, we had these studies in the early 2000s looking at therapeutic hypothermia and, it, right. and there was people that were early adopters and they were like, woohoo. And it's like, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and it didn't work we out so well. <laughs> can, can we replicate that? And we've got, we've got, you know, like so many examples of things like that where when better, more, or higher quality studies done, the original sexy, wow, big effect sizes drift down to uh, actually that's not that effective or it didn't work. So um, certainly be cautious about being an early adopter and, and stuff like that. But you also don't want to be lagging, you know, over 10 years behind. Sure. And there's a lot to be said about being an early adopter. It's, it's an important thing, especially with the speed that medicine is moving. But when you're looking at a study, like you're in Canada, we're in the United States, and that simple change could be something that's very significant. Or if a study comes out of the UK it doesn't necessarily translate to what we're doing or what you're doing, whatever project you're working in. Well, there's different healthcare systems, right? And sure. so, uh, you know, it, 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 you have to look at whatever that study was and say, what's the external validity to that study that I can apply it to my patients and do they care about it? Because we don't know what patients care about unless we ask them. And we so rarely ask them 
does this matter to you? And um, I know that people like to say, you know, Canadians, Americans, you know, the same. Um, <laughs> and, and that usually gets Canadians more upset than Americans. But I mean, you can you can do that to uh, people from New Zealand and Australia, you know, the right. same. And it's like, or just try to say, you know, British versus Irish, <gasps> you know, <Yeah>. so <laughs> there are differences out there. And people, uh, societies value things differently. And and then we have different healthcare systems. And so uh, it may not necessarily apply. And so you, you can try to extrapolate and you can speculate and you make educated uh, and informed decisions. But at the end of the day, sometimes you need to say, hey, will this work in our practice environment? And will it provide a patient-oriented benefit? Which is a big thing to look at. If you're working in a system that is you know, rural and you only see you know, 200 patients a year, it doesn't necessarily translate to if you're working in an urban environment, like if you're working in New York City, or in your case, if you're out in Toronto, and you have, you know, millions of people in a city, the data might not actually pan out um, when you're, you're trying to implement that, that study or that trial. Thanks for Canadianizing it there with TDOT. But, you know, one of the excellent examples of this is mechanical CPR, right? We've got study after study after study showing that mechanical CPR does not provide a patient-oriented benefit. And then we get people from the rural EMS and EMT community saying, yeah, but in a rural area, this might make a huge difference if we could have an extra set of hands thumping on the chest for us. And my answer is, well, that's interesting. We but should we test it. Right. It's, it's hypothesis generating. It's not definitive. It doesn't mean everybody should go out and buy one of these machines sure. in a rural community. What they should do is study it, and then if it works out, apply it. Well, and a couple of the studies on mechanical CPR were financed by the companies that made the mechanical CPR devices as well. Whoa. Go figure. I know. I'm, I'm, of course, this is a podcast, so of course I'm giving them visuals. I didn't go to evil medical school for six years to be called Mr. Thank you very much. <laughs> So that's something I always thought was interesting was, uh, you know, having conversations like, oh, well, it improves outcomes. Like, well, of course it does. You you paid for a study that says it improves outcomes. But it's a whole other <laughs> it's a whole other conversation. Well, conflicts of interest and financial conflicts of interest. And there's even things more uh, or beyond financial conflicts of interest. You'll see researchers who produce paper after paper after paper that have intellectual conflicts of interest. I mean, their careers are based on this. They have research protocols and studies and labs and stuff like that all supporting a, a, a number of people around them based on that bias. And, and it's really hard. I mean, I'm trying to remember who said it, but you know, the easiest person to fool is yourself. And so you've Absolutely. always got to be checking yourself. Well, Sam, while we're talking about that, let's get into different biases that you can get into when either selecting, if you're doing a study, um, either selecting a sample size um, or going through the study. So talk to me about different biases, confirmation bias and selection bias, and what does that actually mean and how can it affect a study? Well, uh, there, there's lots of different biases that you can have. And there's a great paper by Chris Carpenter on uh, diagnostic studies, with, which involve biases. But one of the biggest ones is selection bias. And so if you have patients coming uh, and presenting to, let's say, EMS, and you are not randomizing those patients. So if you don't randomize them and you don't eliminate selection bias, you can really bias the study because you can go, yeah, I think that person should be in the epinephrine group because I think they're going to make it as opposed to, yeah, they're dead. Um, right. Don't put that. They can go to the placebo group. You know, like so selection bias can be huge. And, and so the first study with regards to randomization and randomization for allocation purposes was a study by uh, Hamilton and all. Uh, and this guy, uh, Hamilton, 200 years ago, 1816, and what he, it was on bloodletting. 
And the, all the bias of the day was if you have camp fever, which I assume was some kind of sepsis during war times, right. if you had camp fever, they would bloodlet you. They would drain the blood out of you. All the bias should have been, we drain blood, you do better, right? And if you didn't do better, clearly we didn't bleed you enough. Clearly we <laughs> didn't bleed you early enough. Clearly we didn't bleed you long enough. Oh, we should have done it in interrupted cycles. All of these things you hear talked about um, current studies, right, that don't show something. Right. But this guy, this medical student, by the way, and I know you're a medical student, he was a medical student, Alexander Hamilton in Scotland, and he said, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. And so he did the first randomized trial that I'm aware of on allocation. And so all these people that came in with camp fever, they would be allocated randomly to standard of care, bloodletting, or not bloodletting. The lance never touched them. And then you can, they made a nice two-by-two two table, and the number needed to treat to kill – because the people who got bloodlet, 18% of them died. And if you were in the no bloodletting group, 3% died. So there was a 15% absolute reduction in mortality if you didn't get bloodlet. So that was the number needed to kill of six. So pretty impressive. But that's selection bias, right? You've got to get rid of selection bias. Right. Which is, it's fascinating that, you know, that's only 150 or something years ago. We were like, oh, no, we'll just get more blood out of you. And I'm sure you'll get better at that point. Um it's it's interesting to me to see like over time how how things change. But you had mentioned the number needed to kill. Talk to me about how number needed to treat affects a study and what that actually means. Um, and along that line, what would be what do you think is an appropriate sample size to actually have a good um, kind of robust data set? So that's a really interesting question, Ed, because you know the number needed to treat is a is a way to express. Um, something to a patient and to colleagues on the effectiveness, right? And we all think, oh, I got that <clears throat> that drug for, let's say, cholesterol. I got that cholesterol drug. That means I'm not going to have a heart attack. Actually, that's it's, not true. <laughs> it's, it's, you have to, you know, if you're doing secondary prevention, you have to take this cholesterol drug for 10 years. And I don't know how many people the number needed to treat, but it's not one. The number needed to treat is multiples of that. And so not everybody gets the benefit. But number needed to treat is an okay way to look at things and transmit that information. But think about it this way, and I'll give you, um, I'll give you an example. What happens if I said the number needed to treat was five? Is that a good number needed to treat, Ed? I tend to think it's fairly low. Yeah, yeah, it's pr fairly low, which means high, right? Like, yeah. th that's good, right? right? But what if I told you that number needed to treat was you needed to treat uh, a patient with a drug that cost $10,000 so they had one less flatulence a day? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not as robust. It's not as valid. So, so, but what happens if I told you I have a number needed to treat of 50,000? Is that good? Right, a little bit well, little low, right? Yeah, yeah, you'd say, well, geez, that's a lot of people. Well, now I'm talking about vaccination and the cost is really low and we're stopping mortality or something like that. Right. So you have to put it into context. What are you treating? How much does it cost? And is it really patient oriented? Do people really care how many flatulence they have a day compared to whether they were alive or dead? I would say that they're probably more concerned, depending on their flatulence, um, uh, being alive or dead. Um, and so the number needed to treat, you can convey the information in a new way, but you also always have to put it into that clinical context and take into account other things. And that's why you've probably heard me say multiple times on my show, it all depends. Right. And that's something that it, when I talk about, the reason I ask about number needed to treat is I feel like that's 
a piece of information that's kind of set out there a lot. And I mm-hmm. don't know that it's interpreted well um, necessarily because you can have a cardiac arrest study that would show that the number needed to treat was, say, you know, 40, which sounds great, but it only applies to, you know, a very specific patient subgroup. You know, like you know, witnessed VF arrest in a city that whatever provides fire EMS, which doesn't that, really that are, doesn't yeah that, that are left-handed that drive diesel trucks right. that you know like you could do so many subgroup analyses, but we're getting the other thing. But if you go to a there's a website called sketchyebm.com, sketchyebm, okay. and sketchyebm has a great um, uh, video whiteboard tutorial, like a five-minute video on number needed to treat, explaining that with flatulence. It's fantastic. It's done by a friend of mine. And that's great. That'll be linked in the show notes as well. Um, So again, the the whole purpose of this conversation is to try and um, explain to EMTs and medics how to read studies. Um, I think one of the, I guess, the barriers that we run into is when you start opening up a study, you know, you see New England Journal of Medicine, giant abstract, whatever, and it starts getting... Oh, (laughs) you had to bring up the New England Journal. Not Not my favorite journal. I mean, you know, they've... They're, they're there, but you know, they put they out, have a name, they, they have out, a name, you know, whatever. They still put out the Wakefield things. So that's something that still kind of bugs me. But, um, so, you know, you see a, a big journal and it's got a whole bunch of numbers and letters that don't seem to, uh, to mean anything. Um, and it can take time to kind of learn how to read a study, but do you really need a significant background in statistics to know how to interpret a study? No, it's easy enough. Cause I, I think the concern that a, a lot of people have when they read studies is that there's a lot of big intimidating information out there. Um, and as I said, we're not really taught that a lot in the pre-hospital environment. So if you were to approach, you decide today, it's like, you know what, there's a lot of good studies out there. I want to get involved in how to read information, how to read studies. How would you direct someone who's working in EMS to kind of start on that path? So one of the best ways to do it is like they just did their EMS training. Practice, practice, practice. Was it easy putting in your first cannula, your IV? No, you fumbled around and you looked like you were left-handed all the time. You had thumbs everywhere. And it was really difficult to start that first cannula. Or where do those leads go again? Which side of the body is the right? Or, you know, like, I mean, you know, there's that uh, factor right at the right. start. Everybody's going to have that factor when they start reading studies as well because it's something new. So you practice, practice, practice. But how do you practice? And what I would suggest is pull off some of the quality checklists. So there's quality checklists for how to read a study. And uh, I've got some on my site. I can give you some links to some. And for randomized control trials, there's 11 questions. So all you have to do is take this little checkbox and you know, EMS is good for checklists. Yep. You, you know, you, you take this checklist of 11 questions and say, did, you know, the first one is, were these patients uh, pre-hospital patients? Yes or no? Okay. Yes. All right. One check. Next question. You know, were they randomized? Hey, yeah, they, they, the word randomization on the PDF, I can just do a search now, go hit randomization. Ooh, that, yep, they randomized the patients. Were they blinded? Yep. Okay. Another check mark. And you go through those 11 checks. And if you do that and you do that time and time and time again, you can read a study really fast with that checklist. And then you look back at the checklist and you go, yes, no, we're unsure on those 11 questions. They really only got five of them where the rest were no's or unsure. You can already tell you that that's probably not a good study. Right. It shouldn't change your practice. And I, so that's kind of the thing is I think when – when you talk to people or when you listen to, to any show, you know, whether it's our show or your show, I think you can listen to people who have been doing this for 10 or 15 years and think it comes very naturally to them. Um, and I think it's kind of important to say, like, you know, there was a day, I'm sure, when all of us were like, I don't really know how to read a study. And then you start on day one and you just kind of build on it from there. 
Exactly. Yeah. You know, you got to walk before you can run. And, 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 you know, if you're interested in, in providing the best possible care to patients, you'll be interested in staying up on the literature, especially in the pre-hospital care. It's, a, it's an area, it's a huge area of potential research. And, and so reading this stuff will really stimulate you on what you're doing and what care you're providing, but also stimulate you on getting involved in protocols and maybe doing your own research. I'm, I'm interested in you know, doing research in the EMS uh, setting. So uh, hopefully some of your listeners will get all excited and then reach out to me and say, hey, Ken, I've got a project. And I'll go, hey, let me take a look. I'll help you put together the methodology for it. Yeah, that'd be perfect. And that's so talking about doing studies in EMS, when we talk about randomization, um, I think one of the problems we run into in EMS is that the patients tend to be fairly difficult to randomize. And especially if you have a group where you don't see a lot of patients, it's really difficult to have access to those patients to actually run a trial. So do you, do you find in, in your experience that that's some, one of the problems that we run into in EMS? Or is it just that we're not, I guess, working hard enough to publish more data? No, I think you just have to coordinate, right? I mean, there's lots of single centers out there and what they do is they get into multi-centers and they create networks. And I mean, we're talking on a podcast, so we're talking social networks. So maybe somebody will be listening to this who isn't in New Jersey or in Canada and say, hey, our, our system's doing this. Could we collaborate with you and pool our resources and expertise and uh, we'll have enough patients to do a multi-centered randomized control trial looking at something that's really clinically important to patients. Right. And absolutely. And that's the multicenter randomized control trial. Um, we've mentioned that a couple times is kind of the big thing that you want to look for. But talk to me a little bit more about the hierarchy of data. So there's it's kind of easy to publish a case study, right? You can come up and say, I saw an interesting thing and then put it out. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think that those are great. I don't think that provides us much information other than saying I should do a, a project on this or a research project on that. Right. Uh, with with that going on, but there is a hierarchy to evidence, and there's a bit of debate about, you know, is there is this kind of artificial this hierarchy? But the hierarchy goes from case reports, and in my experience, or the lowest form of evidence, Ken told me to do it this way, um, <laughs> which you shouldn't believe. You should look up the primary literature yourself. Right. I'm, I can only get you so far. But then it goes up to case-controlled studies, uh, which is a number of types of observational studies. So that's about associations, looking backwards, sometimes looking forwards, but observational in nature. So you can only say that there's an association. You can't really drill down into cause and effect with that methodology usually. Uh, it's a high bar to cross. But then you get into the randomized control trials and people think, oh, that's the highest form. But there is actually systematic reviews and meta-analyses that are above that. But, you know, I'll take a really well-designed randomized control trial that has great methods than a really crappy uh, systematic review and meta-analysis because you can do a crappy meta-analysis and it's it's almost i grew up in the country so if you take a bunch of apple pies and add a cow pie to it and i don't know if your people know what a cow <laughs> pie is but it doesn't make the apple pie taste any better so it's garbage in garbage out so if you're throwing crap into the grinder what do you think is going to come out the other end? You might have this like, oh, this point estimate with these tight, narrow confidence intervals and a p-value that's so minuscule. But it means nothing because it's all crap coming out because it's only crap putting in. So you have to be even careful about systematic reviews and meta-analyses. You have to be careful and you've got to go, what was the quality of that study? What were the biases? What were the included studies that they had? And, you know, the making of an apple pie is only as good as the ingredients. 
Right. And that's, uh, and again, if you are someone who's taking a statistics course, they talk about meta analyses being the, you know, the top of the pyramid um, for, for statistics. And you're bobbing your head back and forth. Like, but yeah, you're right. If there's, if I take 10 really poorly done randomized control trials, I've got nothing. I've got, you know, a meta analysis of, you know, like I said, 10 pieces of crap. It doesn't really actually change anything, which is important because it's, it's something I think that meta analyses get put out a lot by you know, places like Cochrane and like that. And there is that, I think, publish or perish kind of mentality to a lot of those places where, you know, we have to get this information out as soon as we can. So let's find, you know, whatever, 15 studies that actually have a keyword in it and then put them out. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have to be skeptical even of meta-analyses. So as far as case studies are concerned, and we we mentioned this a little bit earlier, um, do you think that they actually have a role in guiding the course of treatment or are they just kind of a, a nice thing that you can see and just kind of consider um, after they get published? So here's my answer to difficult questions. It all depends because there's <laughs> – I love it. It's the, the, be- it's the, the best answer. I love it. It's great. It's the best answer. It all depends because – there, there are limits to evidence-based medicine, and I'm going to use the definition of evidence-based medicine as the Dave Sackett uh, definition of the conscientious, explicit, judicious use of the best available evidence to make individual patient decisions. But, and I may have slightly misquoted that, but that's from my memory. Um, the, the, the thing when it comes to case studies and limitations of evidence-based medicine, do you think we're going to have a randomized control trial on, hey, you've got em- uh, meningitis? We're not sure if early antibiotics is the thing. So we're going to randomize you to early antibiotics or late antibiotics. Right. You know, it's, that's not going to pass the ethics uh, IRB. And so you're going to have to go with case control studies or observational studies. And that's going to be the highest form of evidence you get. It's sort of like the, the parachute trial uh, problem that was published in the BMJ about 10 years ago. Whereas, you know, we don't have really high quality evidence that wearing a parachute prevents major orthopedic trauma (laughs) and uh, mortality when you're jumping out of a plane. And so what they suggested in this BMJ article, because we have case reports, case reports, just like you said, case reports of people falling out of a plane and surviving without a parachute. And we have people jumping out of an airplane. Why would they do that? Jumping out of an airplane with a parachute on and, and get an iatrogenic injury and harm themselves. So the only way we can figure this out, if, if gravity, you know, if, if a parachute can prevent gravitational injuries and mortality is to do a randomized control trial where we take all the evidence-based medicine experts, fly them up into a plane, and then you'll be randomized into a parachute or a backpack. That's the sham. <laughs> and then everybody jumps out of the plane. But to make it even better, and it's blinded, of course, of course. but to make it even better, it, it's a crossover trial. And so if you survive the jump, you're crossed over into the other group, and then you're flown back up into the plane and jump out again. <laughs> to do it again. And then we will have <laughs> definitive evidence that wearing a parachute is a good idea when you jump out of an airplane. And of course, we're not going to do – well, they're still looking for um, – actual subjects they're still in the recruiting phase because well, nobody's actually it's signed tough. up you'd have to do a multi-center trial on that too <laughs> yeah yeah and, and nobody and nobody seems to want to be interested in signing up for that so of course there's limitations so um, when i said it all depends i think case studies and observational data and stuff like that has a role if you cannot get a higher form of evidence such as a randomized control trial 
to do that study so they can inform your care, they can direct future research, and it may be as good as you get. And sometimes we have to deal with limited information and make decisions because, you know, some people get paralyzed with evidence-based medicine saying, oh my God, there's not a study on that. I can't apply it. Well, evidence-based medicine isn't just about the literature. It's about the clinician's experience and the patient's values. And those three things come together. And so sometimes you're not going to have great literature and it's not possible or ethical to have great literature, but you still have to move forward and make a decision. Well, and absolutely. And I think in our field, that's something that we kind of run into a lot. I, I anecdotally, I tend to hear a lot, you know, well, how come there's no study on this? There's no you know data that supports making whatever decision. And I think, again, pre-hospitally, despite the I guess the availability of patients that we would have, it's very difficult to do that type of study. So the question would have to be like, well, how would you do whatever X study? And there's never really an answer for it just because of the environment that we're in. I've got one for you though. Okay. That isopropyl alcohol for nausea. We're going to just it. have, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to do a randomized pre-hospital study of anybody who gets uh, flagged for the call as suffering from nausea and vomiting. And you guys can wave some magic isopropyl alcohol under their nose and compare it to a active control or some kind of something scented at least because I think the saline pads aren't good because it unmasks the trial potentially. You know you're in the treatment group because you're smelling this medical stuff. Sure. So if you have some kind of mint or peppermint or some kind of substance that um, that can be used as the placebo or the control and then you take a nausea score at the uh, at the onset of the call and arrival at the hospital after being treated with randomized into one of those two things. There's your study. That's great. And just as a, as a reference point for, for the uninitiated, there's been a couple studies that isopropyl alcohol um, helps to quell nausea. Um, and it's a cheap and available option um, in the field. I've used it and I've gotten a lot of kind of side-eyed looks for it. Um, but it works pretty well and it's interesting. So I'm actually, that would be an interesting study to do. I'd be excited to see I, that. I would, I would say I don't know if it works. Um, it's interesting. Uh, sure. It is cheap. It, it could very well be a placebo effect. And uh, so I'd like to see a, a high quality study done um, with that kind of control in the pre-hospital setting. So let, let's unpack that a little bit. How I know you had mentioned different scents for the placebo, but for something, I guess, in that case, aside from the patients, I guess, reporting things, how would you actually control for, um, I guess, the efficacy of the drug? So there's standardized uh, validated tools that you would, uh, have for the nausea scale okay. and you could also count how many times they threw up and you could have the um, before and you could have the after all right cool it's easy enough so one uh one last thing um you are up in canada and i this is a question i like to ask people um that are canadians how do you think the maple leafs are doing this year and what are your hopes for them <sighs> <laughs> Why don't you throw a little salt and lemon juice on that wound? You know, <laughs> I'll ask, I'll, I'll answer a question with a question. When did the, when did the Leafs win the last Stanley Cup? It was 63, right? 1967, the 67. year I was born. Oh, so oh, oh, you're the expert. They have not So there's, won a, there's a direct correlation to Ken Mill oh, yeah. being born and the Maple Leafs drought. There's, there's <laughs> you know, and some people may say it's cause and effect, but they have not won a cup <laughs> since I've been around. And it's like, oh. And and people may blame me for that, but oh yeah, go Leaf Nation. It's it's a drag. I I get it. I'm I'm a Devils fan, and I was a Philadelphia. I am a Philadelphia Eagles fan, so I understand the uh, the, the drought mindset. But so Ken, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. Um, this is a great talk. I'm going to put all this stuff in the show notes and make sure everyone checks it out. So thanks again for talking to me, Ken. I appreciate it.
It's my pleasure. And if anybody actually wants more information, have a chat. I'm always happy to uh, be contacted. And uh, you'll list my email in the show notes. I answer my emails. Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine is one of the best podcasts out there, guys. Make sure you listen to it. So thanks again to Ken Milne. My pleasure. Thanks again to Ken Milton for joining me. Um, I thought that was a great interview. I was really happy to have the opportunity to talk to him. Something that we don't talk about a lot in EMS uh, and pre-hospital medicine is how to read the data that we're presented. So I think this is a really important conversation. It's something that I think um, a lot more focus needs to be put on. All of the links that we talked about in the show are going to be linked in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. And while you're at it, make sure that you subscribe to us on all of the places where you can get your podcasts. Check out our website over on productions.com and follow us on all the social medias, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And with that, for the overrun, my name is Ed Bowder, and we'll talk to you next time.